This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. Your eyes on the times, you walk ready to speak up. But with so many problems, you're exhausted trying to keep up. This is the Church Politics Podcast, where you can get political commentary from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be conservative or progressive. We're trying to be Christian in the public square. And I'm black as heaven. I'm made in God's image. Nobody can change my settings. Hey man, cut off my knees and put it into my search. It's easy to sell your soul when you don't know what it's worth. Which you know, good and camp. You're listening to the and campaigns church politics podcast with Justin Gibney, aka Bishop Cooper's grandson, and the Windy City representer, the baddest brother above the Mason Dixon line, my play cousin, the right reverend Christopher Butler. Now, Chris, as you know, usually when we get and start an episode, we try to start on a high note. We try to show a little bit of levity. We might talk about sports or other things. Today's episode makes me think that would not be a great idea. We probably should just jump into the conversation and not try to bring levity to it or or any of that stuff. And, and, you know, I'm not saying if people do that, you're always wrong. I think for us, the best way to approach this is to go right into it. So we want to dedicate this episode fully to the Israel-Palestine conflict what's going on in the Middle East right now, what's been going on in the Middle East for quite some time. This conversation has been daunting. I first want to say my heart goes out, my prayers go go out to everyone and every family in the Middle East that's lost a loved one that's been impacted by this. There's true wickedness at play here, and I want to make sure that our prayers are going out to those who have been just harmed in the midst of all this violence It's just really sad, man. I just want to give you a chance, Chris, to kind of express how you're feeling in this moment in in, in regard to this conflict. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a hard thing to watch. And I've been taking in plenty of the of the news and and things like that, because it's it's serious. For me, it has just been a very, very prayerful time, even here in the church and our network, making sure that that the church is engaged in prayer just you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a very serious time. A lot of people are hurting in a lot of different ways and a serious sort of potential threat for the world is before us. So, you know, it is, you know, a very prayerful time for me. And I, I hope that a lot of our listeners will also just engage in a lot of prayer in this time. It's important, not just for the people who are going through this, but also for our perspective. Because I think we can all get caught up in the moment, caught up in narratives and lose perspective. And I hope we're all praying not only for those who are hurt, but also for our perspective and and to make sure that we are being thoughtful and and, uh, faithful in in how we discuss it and and so on. Because it, you know, how America in general responds is going to have some major consequences uh, one way or another. So let me get in. I mean, most of you kind of know what we're talking about with this Israel-Palestine conflict. But let me just give you some of the facts, the more recent facts. And what I'm going to try to do here, because this is a massive subject, we're not going to cover everything. If you're looking for something that's comprehensive, you're in the wrong place. We got 30 to 45 minutes. We don't have time to cover everything. We will try to do our best to go to sources that we found to be objective 
and give you the information from there. That, that's what we're going to try to do. All right. According to the Associated Press, this is what happened. Backed by a barrage of rockets, Hamas militants stormed from the blockaded Gaza Strip into near, nearby Israeli towns, killing dozens and abducting others in an unprecedented surprise attack during a major Jewish holiday. A stunned Israel launched airstrikes in Gaza, with its prime minister saying the country is now at war with Hamas and vowing to inflict an unprecedented price. In an assault of startling breath, Hamas gunmen rolled into as many as 22 locations outside the Gaza Strip, including towns and other communities as far as 15 miles from the Gaza border. In some places, they gunned down civilians. I want you to keep that in mind. In some places, they gunned down civilians and soldiers as Israel's military scrambled to muster a response. An estimated 1,400 Israelis were killed in Hamas's October assault on Israel. Part of this happened, I believe, Chris, if I'm not mistaken, at a concert. Uh, women and children have been killed. Again, most of the deaths on October 7th, as I understand it, were civilians. As we talk about this, I want you to keep this in mind. Uh, as, as we talk about this, these tactics and the way Hamas goes about this has to be at the forefront of our analysis. Uh, and I want to start here by condemning the attack that clearly had no regard for civilian life, that had no regard for the lives of Israeli women and children. It was wrong and it has no justification. Hamas needs to be condemned for that. And I say that unequivocally. Hamas was dead wrong. And any of you that watched the video, the reel that I did for Instagram know that we have already stated that. Now, there were other deaths involved in this as well. 2,750 Palestinians have been killed. And these are the latest numbers that I have. Another risk that we're taking is that these numbers grow even while we're talking before you hear it. That can happen. But as of right now, 2,750 Palestinians have been killed. 9,700 have been wounded since the fighting erupted. So that's kind of where we are now. We'll give some other updates as far as the geopolitical disposition at the moment. But that's I want to give you a basic understanding of what happened on October 7th. There's a lot of other factors, a lot of other details I could have given. I'm giving you kind of the bare bones idea of what happened. Please go look up and speak to others. Uh, go look up and do some due diligence about what, you know, if you want more information in that regard. OK. Before we get deep into this, we got to take care of some business real quick. I want to give a shout out to all our patrons and supporters for, for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. If you're watching this on YouTube, make sure that you like and subscribe. We need those likes and subscriptions so we can grow and reach more people. And again, pray for us even too, because uh, this is not an easy subject. But as always, we want you to grab your Bibles, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but to think like a Christian. Chris, Matthew 5, 9 says this. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. As you know, Chris, I'm not a pacifist. And although I think in some circles pacifism is kind of trending, I tend to think that most people aren't pacifists or they wouldn't be pacifists if a whole lot of violence and wickedness came to their door and was terrorizing 
them in their community. That's just my guess. I could be wrong. You know, I, I tend to think, uh, and here's an illustration that I, I sometimes use. I tend to think if we lived in a village and every time our, our, our women went to the well, the people in the next village were raping them and they did it over and over again. I don't think that we would say, oh, I'm, I'm a pacifist and let that go. I think we would say, hey, based on, you know, a just war theory or whatever, I have a reason to defend my people and to go into a conflict with that group. I think that's how most people would respond if they were having to deal with something like that so close to home. But I do want us to keep Matthew 5, 9 in mind as we think through this discourse, as we think about what's going on with Israel and and Palestine. Because although I don't think it means that war is never justified, I do think it's a general disposition that applies even to this conflict and the things that we might go through. And Chris, I'll be honest with you when, you know, when tasked with even having a conversation about this conflict, it's one that you go into really understanding that you can't win. And when I say you can't win in this is that we go into this knowing that we will not satisfy everybody and that everybody won't be happy with us. But again, Chris, as you know, that's never really been our goal. Our goal with the Church Politics Podcast, with the AND campaign in general, has always been to be as faithful, thoughtful, and intellectually honest as we could be. And the day that we stop doing that because one particular narrative is prominent or we, you know, we're getting pressure from one side or another is the day that the AND campaign and the Church Politics Podcast have to end. And so I want everybody out there listening to us today on this very serious subject to know that that's our only interest, to be faithful, thoughtful, intellectually honest. I'm worried about the innocent lives that are being taken from this conflict. That's my primary concern. That's the thing That's the thing that when I'm alone that I, I think about when this comes up, how people are being hurt, how people's lives are being taken and how people are suffering. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't really have a sense of loyalty to either side. That doesn't mean I think they're equivalent. They're not. And I'll, I'll explain why in some ways there's there's differences, especially when it comes to Hamas and Israel. But I do my best to empathize. I care about the people. I don't really have a sense of loyalty to one side or another. And I think and I, but I understand why some people do. And I also see that that sense of loyalty has pulled some people into what I would call partiality. Not everybody, but I think it's pulled some people into partiality. That may be understandable. That doesn't mean that from a Christian perspective, it is that it's right. All right. So we're entering into a conversation that is so polarizing where we know we can't cover everything, where we know we can't do justice even to the history, but we're going to try to give you a little history. We're going to talk a little bit about where the discourse is today. But one of the things, Chris, that's been so frustrating for me is just how toxic this discourse has been, how people have completely based what they believe on narratives, how, how people have used bad theology, used fake news, don't want to listen to the facts that are, that, are, that are in front of them, but are just sticking to what they believed before any of this happened, as if they already knew the conclusion and, and who to blame for everything before this even took place. And we talk about that over and over again. And to say that I'm going to try to look at this objectively, again, does not mean 
that we're using some type of both sidesism. It does not mean that we're saying Hamas and Israel are equivalent. All right. But it is trying to be intellectually honest and not let narratives override the facts. Furthermore, I've been surprised to see how quickly people who are against cancel culture will embrace cancel culture. In general, I've been it's been interesting, Chris, for me to see people who are usually fairly thoughtful and reasonable when it comes to this issue just really be unreasonable and go against some of the principles that they said that they believed in. It's been really interesting or really surprising. I can't even say interesting. It's worse than interesting. It's been really disheartening to see how that has happened, how people have betrayed some of the principles that they hold others to on other subjects and how they treat people who don't agree with every jot and tittle of their narrative and what they would want them to say. This is the one issue for a lot of people where the rules and the principles apparently just don't apply in the same way. And I think that's unfortunate. I think as Christians, we have to do better. From what I can tell, and I'm about to pass it to you now, Chris, from what I can tell, for a lot of Christians, this conflict boils down to Jews and Christians versus Muslims. And they believe that the Bible tells us which side we have to be on, regardless of the facts. And I think personally that not only is that unbiblical, I don't think I don't think the Bible actually does that right now or gives us a reason to be partial within this conversation. But I also think it's dangerous, dangerously reductive to view it that way. Not to mention that there are Christians in Palestine. And so what are we supposed to say about that? So, Chris, I want to hand it, hand it to you just to hear what you think about the discourse and even even a little bit about what we should do in regard to theology on this and what the Bible says and what it doesn't say in this regard. Again, I want to reemphasize we condemn Hamas and what they did. The bigger question, and we'll get to that this earlier, is if indeed, yes, we believe Israel can defend themselves, how are they able to do that and what tactics are out of bounds is really the question in my mind. But go ahead, Chris. Yeah, so there are quite a number of things that could be said about the discourse. I think the the first thing that I think is really important for our listeners to remember at 10,000 feet is just this conversation about how we enter into discourse. And there is this big mistake that we often make, and I see people making it a lot with this conversation. The first is to embrace this idea that you have to become a Middle East policy and history expert in order to come into the conversation. And so then you have a lot of people jumping into conversations, you know, making statements, doing videos, et cetera, et cetera, taking this approach and coming at the question as if they know everything that there is to know about the Middle East, the history, the politics there. And these are folks who a month ago, two weeks ago, were not discussing the Middle East, were not discussing Israel-Palestine, any of those things. And all of a sudden, you're an expert on it. I think that's a big mistake, and it's a mistake that I would encourage Christians to avoid. I try not to do that. There are definitely policy issues, Justin, where I feel like I've worked in the space and read a lot and done a lot to give myself some 
subject area weight. You know, if we're talking about education, if we're talking about child care, if we're talking about good government and kind of election policy, if we're talking about organizing and movement building, I will feel I have a lot in terms of expertise to add into that conversation. I don't think that we have to act like we're an expert in every single thing. And so if you're not an expert in Middle East history, politics, warfare, all those types of things, you don't have to become one to enter into the discourse. The flip side of that, though, is the kind of shushing of everybody else by the so-called experts. So while you don't have to become an expert on the matter to enter into the conversation, you don't have to be an expert on the matter to feel what's happening in the region right now. You don't have to be an expert on the matter to have an opinion, to have something to say, especially if you're an American, to have something to say about our government's policy and our government's approach. You don't have to be an expert on that. That's not how we do our politics in a democratic form of government. That's not how we do our civics culturally. And so I I would like to encourage believers, listeners to the Church Politics Podcast, to avoid both of those pitfalls. You don't got to become an expert, but you don't have to be an expert to enter into the conversation. I think that reasonable people can read what's available, check out a lot of different resources. You know, we talk a lot on this podcast about media hygiene. Make sure that you're doing that, that you're not just getting all of your information from one source. Get that information and then engage thoughtfully in the conversation. You don't have to be an expert to do that. But you don't have to act like you're an expert just because you read like seven news articles and that type of thing. Uh, so that's really uh, an important part of this to me. On the question of both sideism, which is something that I've been accused of in this last week, I would remind the the believer of James chapter one, where it talks about being that every person, I believe it says every person should be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to get angry. And so there is a real need to avoid what I would call false equivalency, which when when we enter in this conversation, we should avoid that. And I've tried to avoid that. I've not made a ton of public comments, but in the, the conversations that I have had, I have no problem condemning, been literally, and I can say literally disgusted by what we saw on October 7th. When you see folks who are just at a music festival and then somebody steps into that music festival and starts firing automatic weapons, I mean, we actually know something about that in the United States, unfortunately. That is terror. That is, I mean, if if you've ever been to a music festival, I know, Justin, you, you love going to concerts. I mean, just the thought that a concert becomes an unsafe space, driving down the street, becomes an unsafe space. You don't expect that you're going to be shot and killed, kidnapped and taken hostage, going to a concert. And anybody who can do that, I don't know a reason under heaven that I would ever say that's okay. Um, That's terror. That's horrible activity. But I don't think that it is both sides. At least I don't think that it's false equivalency. Let me say that. It's not false equivalency to say Let's look at all of the aspects of this. Let's try to listen to all of the various voices that are trying to speak into this conversation. I think that that is in keeping with a general Christian ethic toward discourse in general. We 
should try to be slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to get angry. And so I do want to hear what people from various perspectives on this matter have to say. And so I, I, I won't create a false equivalency, but I won't be shamed because I want to hear from more than one side. My grandmother taught me well and my mother that there are two sides, at least two sides to every story. And the wise Christian, I think, would be looking to hear various perspectives. That doesn't mean that you have to agree with all those perspectives. That mean, that doesn't mean that you have to reinforce, propagate all of the different perspectives. But in order to be, to take a wise approach, I do think that you want to hear from various perspectives. And that's why it is concerning to me, Justin, that the, the language of quote unquote, both sides ism is, it, it, it's been curious to me because when you say both sidism, it feels like to me, like you're suggesting that you don't even need to listen to any other side. You just need to listen to one side. And I feel like there was a moment in time where the thing that would be repudiated would be false equivalency. Here, I don't hear people even talking about false equivalency. I hear people talking about both sides as if even acknowledging that there is another side becomes a problem. And I don't think that we can give in to that particular impulse. The last thing I'll say is on the theology front, and you know, Justin, that I, I'm a pastor in a, a very evangelical denomination, and so I approach this topic with great fear and trembling. But I, I can't myself make the theological argument that all Christians have to be on the side of political Israel in this conflict with Hamas in the broader kind of Israel-Palestine question. And I, I will leave it at that here. And I will say that in all of the various theological approaches that I have heard about this, even if you are more of a Israel protectionist and you see a major role for Israel and your kind of eschatology. I don't know of a theological framework where it is suggested that it's the job of other political states in the world to protect Israel, to fund the military of political Israel. It usually, at least that I have heard, and I don't feign to have heard everything, but in what I have heard, it usually comes down to God protecting and God's hand being on. And I think it's always a, a mistake if we're going to step into the place of God. And, and that's a separate question from should the U.S. have an alliance with Israel? Should the U.S. protect Israel? Right. So, we're, you know, the, 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 the assertion isn't that all those things are wrong. It's that that's not necessarily coming from the right. Bible. Right. And, and I then what you see in the, the Bible is I've got there's a lot of people who assume that is because Israel is Israel, we have to act the way that we're acting, biblically speaking. Maybe yeah. we should, but it's not necessarily biblical. And I think that is important. And, and I even see somebody like Russell Moore uh, acknowledge that in, in an article that he wrote about the issue. Not so yeah. Long. And so it's, it's not saying that, that you can't have a have Israel as a focus of your prayer, that you can't you know have a special place in your heart for Israel. I mean, we... We worship a savior 
that did emerge out of Jerusalem that was a Jew. And that does not, it doesn't negate in my theological mind, those things are not negated by saying that we should take a careful and measured analysis to how we engage in this geopolitical question uh, at this particular moment. I don't think that there is a theological dictate on that particular question. Yeah, so that doesn't make Hamas good. That doesn't make Hamas equivalent to anybody else. What we're trying to do is one of their strengths as we analyze this is not to say the Bible has already said what conclusion we should draw on who, you know, on exactly who did what and exactly who's violating human rights. That's not that's not a, a, a biblical dictate. And as even as your heart is is going toward people in the region, which it certainly should, and it certainly should go to Israel. Justin's already said it, but I think it bears saying again, there are Palestinian Christians in Gaza. Make sure that as as your heart goes to the region, one, that your your brotherly, sisterly heart doesn't just go to the place where our Savior emerged from. And I don't think there's anything wrong with your heart going in that direction. But also know that there are brothers and sisters in the faith who are Palestinian, who are in Gaza right now. And know that our heart of compassion, and I think this is a biblical dictate, our heart of compassion is not restricted to those who have come to the knowledge of truth. We have to have a heart of compassion. Be they Muslim or Jewish, right? We have to have a heart of compassion for every single human being who bears the, who stamp with that Imago Dei. Yeah. All right. We're going to have to get out of this segment. We will be right back with a little bit of history and, and, and some more things for you on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the AND Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the AND Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The AND Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we publish with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney and the Right Reverend Christopher Butler. We are talking about a very tough conversation, which is the Israel-Palestine conflict, and really just trying to dig into it, not via narratives, not via bad theology or fake news, but what's really going on. Uh, There are a lot of people suffering through this. We just kind of talked about the discourse, Chris. I want to Before I get into some of the history, I I do want to talk about what's been said as of late to just give people a feel for uh, what's going on and and really the tension in the public square. So it's been reported that a professor from Cornell 
Russell Rickford, had this to say about this conflict. He says, when Hamas challenged the monopoly of violence, it was exhilarating. It was energizing. And if they weren't exhilarated by this challenge to the monopoly of violence, by the shifting of the balance of power, then they would not be human. I was exhilarated. So here you have a professor saying that when Hamas attacked Israel, it was exhilarating and energizing. Wow. Okay. You know, innocent people killed, children killed was exhilarating because it shifted the balance of power and it addressed the monopoly of violence. Then we have Harvard students signed a letter. I think it was a a couple dozen Harvard students signed a letter basically saying this, that in the coming days, Palestinians will be forced to bear the brunt of Israel's violence. The apartheid regime is the only one to blame. They said that they hold Israel, the regime, entirely responsible for all unfolding violence. So Hamas bears no responsibility, apparently. (sighs) Now, after that was said, I think some people responded and even some, I think, alums of Harvard responded by saying and donors of Harvard basically responded by saying that these students should be blacklisted from receiving jobs the rest of their lives. I think that's probably a bit much. I would hope that some of the things that I've heard said by friends and even myself wouldn't be used against me. Something I said when I was 18 be used against me later. That's not to say that there shouldn't be consequences. That just seems a little steep. No, Chris? I would say, I would say yes. Definitely don't hold me to what I said when I was 18. Yeah, that, that seems a little steep. But, you know, they made statements. I think that's a little bit much. Again, that's the kind of cancel culture ruins somebody's lives when they say something that I don't like. Keep in mind, these are college students. Next, we got, had President Biden and President Biden, when he initially addressed this, he said that he, you know, I never really thought that I would see. And I have confirmed this pictures of terrorists beheading children. Right. That's what he went up and said. Later, the White House spokesperson clarified that U.S. officials and the president have not seen pictures or confirmed such reports independent. Got to be careful with our words. OK, CNN reported and others reported that Israel could not confirm that that had happened either. There was something about 40 babies being beheaded. And a lot of people were using that in their arguments on social media about why, you know, regardless of what Israel did, they were in the right. That has not been confirmed by the the White House, U.S. officials or folks like CNN. Apparently, the Jerusalem Post or something like that said that they can confirm it. But we have to be very careful about using stuff like that that has not been fully confirmed. All right. Next, we have Nikki Haley saying this. This is not just an attack on Israel. This is an attack on America. I personally think that's dangerous hyperbole because it actually was not an attack on America. And so that shouldn't be stated in that way. Then she goes on to say this is sick and we have to treat sick people the way they deserve to be treated and eliminate them, finish them. Now, Vivek Ramaswamy pointed out that that was a Mortal Kombat reference and said that the bloodshed is not a video game. I think that comment and the one that we heard from Dan Crenshaw, where he said this looks like the war that will end all wars, is the type of belligerence that we just don't need. It's the type of belligerence that I think doesn't take the suffering of people seriously. If this becomes a war, if we already talked about Israel defending themselves, maybe that's what happens. But how we talk about it matters. 
And it's certainly not a joke. Now, one thing I want to do, because I realize a lot of people don't really even know where this conflict comes from, is I want to kind of give a short survey of some of the history here. Now, again, you need to go read a book. You need to go watch a documentary or read a couple books if you really want to go in depth about this. In this short amount of time, I will not cover everything. I will not do justice to the entire conflict, but I will try to give you an overview of, of how this got going. Okay. Again, this should not, I'm not a historian. I'm not an expert on, uh, on geopolitics, but this is something that we've taken time and been diligent to analyze, but there's a lot of other things that could be mentioned in this timeline. Okay. All right. Now let's start here. The United Kingdom took control over Palestine in 1917 after it defeated the Ottoman Empire in World War I. Okay. From 1922 to 1947, large numbers of Jewish immigrants came to the territory from Eastern Europe, many of them trying to escape Nazi persecution. Okay, that's something to keep in mind as we think about the history here. In 1947, the United Kingdom handed control to the UN and the UN General Assembly decided to partition Palestine into two states, one Arab state and one Jewish state with Jerusalem under international control. Okay. In 1948, Israel declares independence. And this really upsets a lot of the Arabs in the area. This is what this, this is where the Arab Israeli war starts. Israel ends up winning that war and 700,000 Palestinians became refugees as they kind of fled the area. All right. Now, Israel supporters would say that they, you know, they would mention that they were attacked by five Arab states and that they did not. They would say that they did not force Palestinians to flee. You be the judge there. OK, but what we do know is that according to the U.N., they did expand their territory in violation of the U.N. resolutions to areas that were designated for Palestine. OK, that's the U.N. And again, I want to say these are all facts that I got from uh, the U.N. website that I got from AP. This is not stuff that I'm just making up. I'm trying to give you mostly undisputed facts with also some arguments on, from the other side, just so you have the full picture. OK, now in 1967, Egypt, Jordan, and Syria attacked Israel by surprise. This began what was known as the Six-Day War. Israel seized Gaza, the West Bank, and East Jerusalem. Thousands of Israelis would move to these areas and settle, again, in violation of international law that was set by the United Nations. All right? Palestinian resistance groups, this is a big part of it, begin to advance terror attacks, very serious terror attacks, again, involving civilians, airliner hijackings, and something that you may have heard of was the Munich Olympic massacre, which I believe was in 1972. All right. The Palestine Liberation Organization, or the PLO, supported these attacks and started representing Palestinians on the world stage. So you get the PLO in the, the negotiations and representing Palestinians in general. Then comes the first Palestinian uprising where Palestinians protested and attacked Israeli soldiers. 
Israeli military responded to this in a fairly brutal way. After this, this first uprising, then we start to see Hamas emerge. And Hamas was much more militant than the PLO. All right. The PLO, for instance, said that Israel had a right to exist. Hamas said and still says that Israel does not have a right to exist, which has, in many opinions, genocidal, not just opinions, which which is in a way kind of a genocidal statement. And it needs to be, you know, it needs to be dealt with seriously. All right. Our State Department designated Hamas a terrorist group in 1997. Now, this group, which starts off as, you know, this is this terrorist group. They seized control of the Palestinian parliament by election in 2006. Then they violently seized the Gaza Strip. And although you could say they came into power democratically, they've been less than democratic since then and have basically sent up a dictatorship. It's not like Palestinians are voting them in office every other day. Okay. now, according to the Associated Press, Hamas has carried out suicide bombings and over the years fired tens of thousands of increasingly powerful rockets from Gaza into Israel. It also established a network of tunnels running from Gaza to Egypt to smuggle in weapons, as well as attack tunnels burrowing into Israel. It is very clear, if nothing else is clear right now, Hamas is ruthless and their actions cannot be tolerated. Their actions not only obviously put Israeli lives in at risk, it also puts Palestinian lives at risk, right? And so I do believe, as I said before, that Israel has a right to defend itself from this type of te- terrorism. The question again is how and how far that can they go, especially in terms of civilian life? One of the biggest issues I had with how a lot of Christians responded to this wasn't that they said Israel has a right to defend itself, was that they felt like the analysis had to stop there and that there didn't need to be any consideration of Palestinian lives. And those people who say that there does need to be consideration of Palestinian lives are not saying, are not claiming some type of both sidesism, are not claiming that these folks are that Hamas and Israel are equivalent. But as you said earlier, Chris, it's sinful, in my opinion, not to consider those lies, whether they be Christian, Muslim, or whatever. Does Israel, because Hamas is dead wrong, and we've said that several times and condemned them, because Hamas is dead wrong, does Israel just get to flatten Gaza? Or must they take the time to surgically deal with Hamas instead of dealing with Hamas and the Palestinian people as if they can do anything to the people because Hamas is wrong. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah. I mean, I, we're, we're going to, I think, talk more about the future and where we go from here. So I, I will just say on the historical context, you just walked through it, Justin. And, and that was, you know, I, I hope that that was helpful for some, I, I will just say that looking at the historical context is not the same as trying to put some responsibility or explain away the terrorist attack of October 7th. That is not the goal. That is not what either of us intend to do when we say, let's look at the historical context. It is in no way to offer the historical context 
as a reasonable rationale for a terrorist attack. It is not that. It is important as we begin to think about what do we do from this place. I think it's incumbent upon us to look at the historical context and ask ourselves how we got to this place. So that's really all I want to add to the historical context piece is that by looking at the historical context, we're not offering historical context as an explanation for the terrorist attack. It is simply not that. But it is prudent to look at the historical context in terms of thinking about how we how we respond, how we go forward, what kind of responses from Israel we endorse, encourage our government to support and tolerate. There are people involved here, human lives. And so because we're dealing with people, because we're dealing with humanity, that historical context is valuable. Because uh, one of the things that I hope people see in the historical context is that not every Palestinian uh, person is, you know, a a part of Hamas. Not not every Palestinian person is even a supporter of Hamas. And so, even when we think about, I've seen it even written in a lot of the press over the last couple of days. We've started to describe it as a Israel Gaza conflict, and we just have to be very careful to make sure that we don't equate a terrorist group that emerges from a territory with the entire territory and all the people there. Yeah. I mean, and, and again, international law speaks to this and what, what, what really frustrated me, even if we say Hamas is, is, is primarily responsible for what's happening and what they did in Israel was atrocious. It was ridiculous. We still have to look at the rest of what's going on. The, the, the story doesn't end there. And so many people wanted to force everybody to say, no, it's that's all you that's all you get to consider. Nothing else can be considered. Everything else is is both sidesism. And I just think that's wrong because I would ask people, is it both sidesism when the UN, I'm not going to some Palestinian group, some Palestinian outlet. Is it both both sidesism when the UN and the Red Cross say there's evidence of war crimes, alleged there's evidence of war crimes being committed by both sides. Both sidesism is about taking two things and saying they're equal. But to say a something factual about both sides is that both sidesism. So here's what I mean. Dan Crane, an American international law expert, said this. International targeting of civilians and civilian objects without a military necessary reason, and that'd be where the dispute is, is a war crime, period, right? The targeting of civilians and civilian objects. Clearly, Hamas has violated that, right? Hamas, it says, after breaking through Israel's security barrier, Hamas militants gunned down entire families, including women and young children, in border communities around the Gaza Strip. There's no doubt that they violated international law, that that's a war crime. Here's the question. When we look at Israeli military, the Israeli military has pulverized large parts of the Hamas-ruled Gaza Strip with airstrikes and blocked deliveries of food, water, fuel, and electricity ahead of a possible ground invasion. 
Some experts say the blockade, which is hitting the territories more than 2 million residents, violates international law. Collective punishment is a war crime. This is what an expert is saying. Israel is doing that by cutting electricity, water, food, and blocking aid from entering Gaza. Now, Israel, I'm guess, would argue that they have a military necessary reason, right? So they would say they have a reason for doing that. Therefore, they bring themselves out of the out of these war crimes. They've cut off electricity and and water. They cut. My understanding was they cut back on the water, but the water still couldn't get to people because there was no electricity to be able to pump it to people. So we know what international law says. We know there's some technicalities involved with that. All I'm asking you to do is say, how do I analyze this through the view of human dignity and saying, hey, can Israel be more surgical or does this actually constitute a war crime? Some experts in this are are saying that it does. The International Committee of the Red Cross said that the, the order to have all these people leave along with the siege are not compatible with international humanitarian law. So Israel has said, hey, before this siege, we're going to give everybody in Gaza a chance to flee. You can leave now, which is very hard to get millions of people out of there. Where do they go? What are they going to do? They have to give up all that they had. Is that the best way or the only way to get rid of Hamas? The International Committee of the Red Cross said that that is not compatible with international law, not Justin Gibney. That's what they said. And Chris, what I'm trying to say right now is that at very least, we have to understand that this is not a simple conversation where we should be tearing people down for saying that maybe Israel could go about this better. And if we look at the UN has already said in a number of instances that there are human rights violations coming out of Israel. There are a lot of other things that come there. Can we let a complicated situation be complicated even if we say that, you know, Hamas and Israel aren't equivalent. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, and I think that is the the real key is to, is to not try to act like this is easy. It is not easy. It is hard. It is complicated. It's important to recognize that even before the reaction from Israel in terms of bombing Gaza and preparing for the ground invasion, that Gaza was no vacation resort. You know, people living in Gaza up to the moment of the terrorist attack were already in in a very bad way. Uh, it's one of the most densely populated communities on earth. Already there was spotty availability to power, limited availability to fresh water, food, just operational infrastructure, the, the kinds of things that in, in the United States we take very much for granted. We're already in very limited supply. Some people have referred to Gaza pre-terrorist attack on October 7th as the world's largest open-air prison. And even the evacuation order, you get a sense of why that is because you have Israel in, encouraging folks to move to to the south and to uh, you have folks trying to flee Gaza, but they can't, they certainly are not being allowed into Israel. They're not being allowed into the West Bank. They're not yet, at at least anything that I've seen, uh, the conversation hasn't 
uh, worked out for them to go into uh, Egypt. Uh, I've seen the Jordanians say that that's not a place of entry uh, for refugees. And so there's encouragement to leave, but you've nowhere to go. All of the borders are closed. And so it's a fraught situation. It's not easy. It's very complicated. And there's a lot of humanity involved. And so we, like you said, I think, Justin, we, we, we've got to let that be the case. You got to let it be complicated if it's complicated. You can't, in the, in the name of, of avoiding both sideism or false equivalency, you also don't want to be reductionist and, and make a very complex conversation into something super simple. Yeah, because the idea that Israel is absolutely good and the Palestinians, including Hamas, are absolutely bad just isn't realistic. And the history doesn't show us that. I don't know how somebody could look at the history and say, man, the Palestinians probably shouldn't have done that. Or Israel probably shouldn't have done that. Right? Guys, we got to be honest about this. If somebody expands the territory past what international laws is told them to do, that's not okay. And the other side is going to have a feeling about that. Does that mean that they get to terrorize them and, and kill women and children? No. And we'll continue to say what Hamas did is not justified, but the conversation does not end there, especially when you have a lot of people whose, whose lives are at stake. The other thing I'm hearing a lot of people say is, well, they gave them a chance to, to leave and Hamas isn't giving people any chances. That makes what they're doing a little better than what Hamas did. That doesn't make it right. When you ask somebody to do something, give up all that stuff, and there's a there may be a better way to do it, even if it takes longer, but you want to prove how heavy handed you can be and how quickly you can get it done. These are questions that I think not only we as Christians have to ask, but I think the United States has to ask being in a position of influence within this conversation. And we're going to talk a little bit about that uh, when we get back on the Church Politics Podcast. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive, Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us, written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, Breathe, Receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com slash audio to learn more. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast talking about the Israeli-Palestine conflict, uh, what Hamas has done, and what the response should be or should not be from Israel. So, Chris, I, I want to talk very quickly. We talked about war crimes. We talked a little bit about the history, given a timeline. We talked about the discourse. Now we need to look at what's happening moving forward, because this seems like it could escalate fairly quickly. I'm, I'm a little bit I'm a lot worried about that. What I mean by that is Iran has basically warned. They said that they don't want it to escalate, but they have warned of a possible preemptive action against Israel as Israel prepares for a ground offensive in Gaza. 
So Israel has basically been, you know, shooting rockets and all that stuff over over to Gaza. They're preparing a ground offensive. And Iran is saying, we're not just going to sit here and watch that ground offensive happen. So that's one thing that's going on. If Iran and Hezbollah get involved, Hezbollah being a, a, a militia supported by Iran, this gets ugly. And I don't, I can't say that it completely guarantees the U.S. gets involved, but it's very close to that. Now, Biden is going to visit Israel. By the time you hear, hear this, he might already be in Israel. The few things that he's trying to do, he wants to establish kind of solidarity with Israel, be very clear that Israel has a right to defend itself, ask Israel what it needs, and then try to secure this hostage, talk about securing the hostages and things like that. Biden, in a recent interview, said that he trusts Israel will follow rules of war. And I think as much as he talks about the U.S. being the one that has to step in and has to weigh in on these issues... I think he needs to do a little bit better than that. And maybe he will. I hope as he goes to Israel, he will say, hey, you can't violate any rules of war. Period. Right. You need to follow those rules because there's already been allegations and verified videos of them using basically uh, weapons that they shouldn't be using. Right. And so I think if the U.S. is going to be the responsible person that comes in and, and, and does the right thing, then it needs to completely do the right thing and make sure that no rules of war are being violated, because I do think that we have that uh, in level of influence. Also, Chris, you may have heard that about 2000 troops will be deployed. U.S. troops will be deployed to help Israel. So that's already kind of in motion. And here's what I would say. I, I would say as a you know, I think Israel going after Hamas makes complete sense. We've condemned Hamas. We think what they did to women and children is terrible. I get that. I'm worried about Israeli and Palestinian people. And even Biden pointed out that not all Palestinian people have, want to have anything necessarily to do with Hamas. And so how do we take that into account? Any and every response is not okay. So Chris, moving forward, what do you think as responsible Christians analyzing this issue, but also as a responsible country, what are some of the principles or thoughts that we should keep in mind as we move forward and this conflict pushes forward? Yeah, I, I think that the first thing that we want to do is think about what's the goal. Is the goal, is the right goal in response to this to punish Hamas or to protect Israel? And do those things necessarily do the pursuit of those goals necessarily look exactly the same? One of the things that has run through my mind several times, Justin, as I've watched uh, media coverage from several different outlets, is there's so many children in so much of this coverage. And I think that somebody's got to think about, if I'm a child in Gaza, seven years old, eight years old, little boy in Gaza, I'm watching all this stuff. What is my orientation toward Israel and the West when I'm 17, 18 years old, a decade from now? And is that in the long-term interest of the safety of Israel? I mean, the October 7th terrorist attack showed us how technology and just the, the passion of the, the hatred 
whether it be valid and good, well-placed or not, that passion mixed with technology constantly coming on board really sort of brought the playing field a little bit more equal than I think a lot of folks in the world would have imagined that it could possibly be that Hamas, a terrorist group emerging out of Gaza, would even be able to pull off an attack like we saw on October 7th. And that's the world, right? The world is getting more filled with technology, AI, drone technology, et cetera, et cetera. So when we think about keeping Israel safe over the long term, do we have to consider not just how we destroy an existing terrorist cell, but how we win hearts and minds in concentric circles starting right there in Israel, Palestine, and reaching out all across literally the whole rest of the world, winning hearts and minds and making sure that we're doing everything that we can to show that there is compassion, that we're not trying to destroy families and communities, kill children. That's not what democratic nations do. That's not what peace-loving nations do. That's what terrorists do. They came into Israel and did these things. We're doing everything that we can to make sure that we don't respond with, while we respond with tremendous force and while it is you know, the goal to, to get rid of this terrorist organization, we are taking every possible effort to make sure that we don't mirror atrocities because this is not about mirroring atrocities and punishing people because we're mad. This is about getting rid of a terrorist cell and keeping a nation safe. And those things have to be factored into this response. And I think that is that is very, very important. My my granny would probably reduce it down to saying two wrongs don't make a right. And you've got to weigh that in. The second thing is thinking about how is this going to impact the rest of the region, the rest of the world, including the United States. You have, I don't know if our, our listeners know this, you had a, a conversation between Iran and Saudi Arabia talking about how to protect Palestinians. This is, I think this is the first call in some seven years between those two nations, two nations that have not had a lot of diplomatic uh, relations. The Saudis were actually working with the United States to normalize relations with Israel. That whole piece is on hold. That Iran-Saudi Arabia conversation is due to a deal, a situation, a peace, I guess you would call it, that was negotiated by China earlier this year, last year, I, I believe. And so all of these dynamics are happening. And it does, Justin, I have to say, alarm me to hear a lot of our national leaders speak with maybe what they hope is is kind of like giving off confidence. But to me, at times, it feels a little bit cavalier. And you don't want to underestimate any of these other nations in the region, you don't want to not take these things seriously because all it takes is just one little misstep. And I, I don't want to go into every conflict in the history of the world, but really when, when you go through major conflicts, if you're looking at the First World War, you know, Second World War, when you look at the United States involvement, 
in Vietnam. Like many of these conflicts took place because of they started the snowball started because of some misread, some misinterpretation, some accidental killing, and it pulls like great power nations into these conflicts. And so that is the story of great conflict in the history of the world. And so we can't sit here in this moment and act like there's no possibility for that. We should be profoundly diligent and taking every care possible to make sure that we avoid that kind of expansion of this conflict. So those those things are are, are top of mind for me. Uh, and I, I think that I would love to see a little bit more of that vibe and how the conversations are happening. Yeah. So just to be clear, you know, we are against the idea that unless you completely disregard the lives of one side, that you're not being serious or you're equivocating or whatever. I will I'll never disregard the lives of civilians. In war, there may be some civilian casualties. We understand that. One of the reasons why I'm totally against Hamas is because they purposefully went after civilians. That doesn't mean that the civilians in Palestine don't matter. And that's one of the main things I want to get through here. I think it's been very irresponsible that people have suggested that because Hamas is terroristic and what they did was awful, that we can't consider the lives of, of the Palestinians. That what that regard that whatever Israel happens to do in response to what Hamas did is justified. It's not. Can they defend themselves? Absolutely. How they do that matters. And it should matter to Christians and it should matter to the United States, who is in a position to have influence over that response. That's the message I'm sending. Partiality in this moment, I think for Christians is wrong. Don't be if why are you afraid for people to an, I, honestly analyze a situation? Because that's what it seems like to me. Call them names, call it both sidesism. No, analyze it honestly. Look at the past, look at what's happening. What's clearly should come out of that is Hamas is dead wrong. But also we know that again, the analysis does not end there. And that's okay. If we're honest and if we're trying to be thoughtful and faithful, that is okay. All right, Ann Kemp, you know what it is. There is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Kemp. Well, I'll let This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.